the important thing about medical error is not just that it's made once, but that it's made over and over and over again at all these successive stages, that there's no recognition and there's no intervention. So people get sicker and sicker and sicker until we have the case and people, if they were reading, you know, the Toronto media or even in other parts of Canada or the United States about people this last year and the year before living on the streets, unable even to go into homeless shelters because the chemical fragrances and the cleaning materials were so bad. You know, I've known people who've lived on balconies in Ottawa in the wintertime, many people living in tents, many, many Canadians with MCS stage two and three have had to leave their families entirely behind and go and live in a tent in Arizona because it's warm enough that you can actually get through the night. The medical error once upon a time was simple ignorance and now is willful ignorance. That medical error is repeated at every stage of the game and continuously over and over and over again. And it's as far as I'm concerned, it's criminal. It's, it's just criminal. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, and in this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with author and environmental activist Varda Burston. Varda is living with multiple chemical sensitivity, or MCS an illness mostly ignored or outright denied by our healthcare system. Patients experiencing MCS symptoms are often told that they are psychosomatic or malingerers or worse. MCS is yet another example of a widespread diagnostic error causing institutionalized medical harm by preventing patients from receiving appropriate testing and access to treatment. Varda's family has had numerous and catastrophic medical errors, including to her mother and brother, requiring Varda to take on caretaker roles. In spite of this, or maybe because of it, Varda has become a force of nature in the environmental movement. 
Over the years, Varda's award-winning and extensive body of work has tackled hard issues in politics, popular culture, science, technology, health, and the environment. In every medium, for popular audiences, and in scholarly venues. As well, Varda's fiction has been translated into French, German, and Korean. As you will hear Varda attest, the medical system is a power system, and in some jurisdictions, it has a monopoly on the power while colluding with Big Pharma to control a community's health, to control your health. In sharing her own healthcare experiences, Varda unpacks the historical and current influences that shape our healthcare systems. Varda notes that once medical error was just ignorance, but now it is willful ignorance and is repeated over and over again in our healthcare system. And this is criminal. If you are experiencing your own issues related to a medical error or living with a chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. And please consider leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. If you go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews, to sign up to be a premium patron of the podcast. Now, here is my interview with Varda Burston. And a note of caution, some people may be disturbed by Varda's experiences with the medical system. So did you say that you also have care duties? You're caring for someone else? Yes, for, for a lot, yes. Yes, for, for, for from the time I was in my teens until my mid-40s, um, for very long stretches of time, I had very heavy care duties for my mother, who had um, recurring infection, septicemia, which was complications, and developed MCS. I cared for her. Then I, she, she, I moved away, basically um, got married, moved away, went to different places. And then when I was in my early 50s, I, I crashed into severe MCS. And um, alas, uh, you know, I think I told that story last time. But uh, alas, uh, four years ago, my youngest brother, who's 13 years younger than I am, um, had a massive breakdown. And uh, I think he has a triple diagnosis. Um, and or quadruple, he has brain injuries. I, I have brain injuries. I don't know if I, you know, hard to remember what I told you last time. Um, but uh, I have I have two quite bad brain injuries and two quite bad, three spinal injuries. And there's a lot of correlation between people with MCS and these kinds of injuries. So he, he's got four quite bad brain injuries. He, um, uh, has suffered from depression and anxiety for many, had suffered for many, for many, many years. 
having seen how horrible it was to try to address those symptoms as possibly symptoms of chemical sensitivity, he went the antidepressant, the psychotropic drug route, did not, not work for him, and eventually he, he declined, and a psychiatrist gave him a cocktail of seven different psychotropic drugs to take at once, because psychiatrists here don't actually believe in MCS, and they don't believe that it's dangerous to do stuff like that for people who are chemically sensitive and because he did not advocate for himself as a chemically sensitive person and at that time he was a fully functioning professor of uh, culture and information studies at western university and um, anyway within two weeks he had a complete and total mental nervous every kind cognitive every kind of breakdown that you could imagine that goes in between the ears and everything else. And for the last four years, there has been a kind of nightmarish situation where um, we can't, he doesn't have a good diagnosis, he has no treatment. I uh, might have mentioned the last time that I think that the, the one area that might be comparable to uh, our three conditions that we talk about a lot, uh, MCS, ME, FM, um, but particularly ME and MCS, uh, is, um, is, is people who have brain injuries and, and chemical sensitivities, multiple diagnoses that psychiatrists insist on reading as purely psychiatric and will not treat in any other way. And surprise, surprise, he's got worse and worse and worse and worse. So um, I, I do a great deal of caregiving for him and it has it has ha it's taken a real toll. What can I say? So um, yeah, so we've had some hard times. You know, these things flare. Although there's now sort of a consistent level. If you can call crisis ongoing, it's ongoing, <laughs> and 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 then it flares and gets even worse. So we've had some of that recently. Yeah. And does he continue to be on the uh, psychiatric medications? He's off. He he's been through about twenty. The, the psychiatrists who've seen him as excuse me, the psychiatrists, the psychiatrists who've seen him have cycled him through just about everything they could think of, each one making him worse and worse, um, from SSRIs and old style, uh, you know, MAO inhibitors to benzodiazepines to quite heavy antipsychotic medications. He just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So he is to be given credit. He took himself off all the antipsychotics in the last 12 months. And so they had made him like raging, raging, insanely, suicidally crazy. But what he's left with is this absolute killer depression and, and anxiety and sleeplessness. Um, I, I believe that my brother is highly electromagnetically sensitive and quite chemically sensitive. Um, we were able to take him to a clinic in the US, a very, very good clinic with very advanced neurological imaging and smart doctors who took a integrative, functional, holistic perspective on these things. They said they imaged his brain, they did EEGs, they did SPECT scans. They said damaged, damaged, very damaged. Um, they in their intake questionnaires, they ask about chemical exposures, pesticide exposures, mold exposures. They ask about 
drugs that you have taken and what your reactions were to those. Um, that he's had meningitis, for example, which he got after the first brain injury surprise. And, um, and so they asked about all of these things and then they put the whole picture together. So, you know, what they said is, we think this is a, a man with, um, with an injured brain, with chemical and electromagnetic sensitivities, with, um, you know, certainly anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, but these are a function of these kinds of, uh, we brought back all the diagnostics and the analysis and the diagnoses and everything back to Canada and uh, tried to find uh, people who would work with Jonathan on the basis of those. But because we don't, and this will go to what we want to talk about in a little bit, because our medical systems don't have MCS as a category um, that they work with and because it's been psychologized rather than understood as a, in effect, an acquired brain injury, if you like, a damaged neurological system with toxic loads uh, that can be exacerbated by mold and chemicals and so forth. Um, and that is not at all good with psychotropic drugs. You can't convince him of that. And so he has been through medical health and he has declined year by year. And so now we're facing a tremendously difficult, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, we are, we privately financed every, all, just about everything. So like our conditions, this takes a terrible toll on families in every way. And, and uh, right now I'm trying to, having learned about a whole bunch of modalities that are being used in clinical settings in the States, everything from uh, stroke-based brain rehabilitation programs to red light therapy, which helps cell regeneration to various things. We're putting together a program for him and we found a rehabilitation support worker who's learned all of this stuff and they're beginning to try to do it, but he's so far gone, I don't know whether he'll be able to or not. So anyway, so we have a lot of problems every day and we have some really big crises from time to time. And that wipes me out. Wow. Wow. I had no idea that that was also going on in your life. So <clears throat> as ill as you are, you're also a caretaker of a very ill person. Uh, well, that's really unfortunate that your brother is also a victim of medical error. It would I would call that. Very serious. Both my mother and my brother were, shouldn't even touch my mouse here. We're, we're, uh, my mother was a um, I think last time when we talked a little bit about my history, I was saying that I don't like to use the word victim very often. Um, I, I prefer not to think of myself as one just because it's easier for me to maintain a positive stance towards the world if I don't put myself there. But my mother was without doubt victim of hideous medical error um, and my brother Jonathan also. So... Um, it be, anyway, so yes, and that that's hard on a family, you know, um, and 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 I think it's very hard on the spirit. It's certainly been hard on mine, because uh, I, I like to think well of people. I like to think well of um, people in the helping professions. I prefer to feel good about people than to feel bad about people, and yet we've had so many appalling experiences with <clears throat> the medical system. 
and so consequential, so heavily, heavily, heavily consequential that, uh, and, and so ongoing. I mean, you know, my mother, I was 13, 15 when my mother went through that botched surgery that left her damaged for life. So, and I'm 70 now, that's a long time. And since then one, um, I've had a few very positive encounters, but in particular with people who were outliers to the medical system, like this wonderful clinic in Dallas that I went to, that was just fantastic. And that gave me uh, so much gratitude and, and joy to know not only that there were people doing good things on behalf of people who had issues like me, but that their good things existed and could be done. And so, you know, that feeling of positivity of, yes, we can do something of yes, we want to help as opposed to no, never seen anything like it. I don't know what this is. It's all in your head and all the things that my mother, me and my brother have been hearing all, all these years. So it, it does, it, it takes a toll on the spirit as well as on the pocketbook, on the family, on the marriages, on the this, on the that, all, all the other thing. But I do want to say, if, if I may be allowed to broaden this out for just one moment, mm -hmm. that I think more and more Canadians are having experiences like that. Um, partly that's the result of the fact that in the last 40 years, we're seeing more and more conditions that were not sort of part of the medical canon before. We're seeing children born with neurodevelopmental disorders of all kinds, ADHD, uh, being on the autism spectrum, having all kinds of behavioral disorders that are linked at least significantly in part to chemicals, uh, lead poisoning, for example. Uh, the, the, the situation in Flint, all those kids are not all of them, but many, many of those kids in Flint, Michigan, where there was lead in the water and they did not get it out despite everything. Those kids are going to have cognitive deficits for the rest of their lives, usually results in behavioral issues, stresses on the family. We're, since we've entered the chemical age, so many families are having so many problems for which there are no evident treatments or solutions or supports that I, I think we're sort of being honeycombed with these stressed families and stressed communities, but we don't have governments where anybody's like at home keeping track of this and addressing it in any way. So our, our story, my family story is a pretty, pretty tough one, but I don't think it's unique. No, no, I, I don't think so either. I was contacted the other day by a documentary filmmaker. His documentary is just coming out and he profiles uh, just one family in it. Um, and uh, her son was injured at birth um, through some sort of medical error. And then her husband, and permanently, I think he had cerebral palsy. And then her husband died of cancer because the information didn't get from one physician to another physician. So it could be acted upon. So, uh, yes. And part of the data that they're going on is that it's purported that uh, medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. and it's probably not that much different in any other so-called developed country. It was here in 1984 when I did a series called New Ideas in Sickness and Health for Ideas National Radio. I did half of that series on environmental illnesses, it was then called, and the other on iatrogenic disease disease caused by physicians, which we now call more commonly medical error. And it's an enormous number. And it's, um, it's, it's remarkable, the lack of awareness of it. 
Uh, and it's one of the things I think that allows the medical establishment, and we won't speak of every doctor because there are many wonderful doctors, but the medical establishment as establishment to completely ridicule, refuse, psychologize, um, employ many, many, many tactics with conditions or diseases they don't yet understand and to uh, in effect legitimize them. Um, and, and they do that with utmost authority and confidence. And yet, if you take a look at the medical record, it's very, very disturbing. And it, people need to think of physicians, not as priests, as Ivan Illich famously said, we, we now treat our doctors as our priests, not as infallible, um, you know, sort of uh, messengers to God or from God, but really as human beings with a set of skills and some knowledge, which is imperfect and limited. And as we go deeper into the 21st century, a paradigm that was developed a couple of hundred years ago that's been added on to, but that needs to be shifted and, 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 and they need to approach them differently. I think a lot, I'm going to throw in one more comment there. I think many people who can afford to, maybe even the majority, because we know there's a lot of naturopaths out there, naturopaths, acupuncturists, Chinese uh, traditional healers, they spend a lot of money for themselves and their families going to non-medical doctors. And so what happens is, is they choose through their actions, through the way they spend their money, through how they feed their children, they, they choose to go beyond this uh, uh, drugs and surgery paradigm, <laughs> which is mostly what allopathic medicine is, not that important drugs aren't life-saving or, or surgery, but they, they choose to do that. But here in Canada, very few people actually get together and lobby for a change to the way that the public health dollar is spent, to the power of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and, and, and to the extent that people organize, it's a few people around a disease condition that isn't being addressed by the medical system. But it's rare, except in the case of HIV AIDS, and also to a certain extent with learning disorders and autism spectrum in the early 2000s, it's rare to get enough people in a, in a movement to be able to shift government and what it does. And, and so therefore, um, people are, you know, unable to have social supports because the system continues to reproduce itself while the disease picture changes greatly and people cannot get responsiveness from the system to respond to what it needs to respond in new ways. Yeah. So that, that's my editorial. Well, that's a great summary. I, I wish I could be so eloquent when I spoke about how the healthcare system uh, does not support us the way it should or the way it's often perceived to be, especially the Canadian healthcare system. It's this vaunted thing globally. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, you know, and it may be to a certain extent if you have something simple like a broken leg or HIV, because that's very well funded. But uh, if it's anything sort of complex, then yeah, it's sort of a shit show. So going back to the medical era, so there seems to be a theme throughout your entire experience with illness of uh, it being psychologized or psychiatrized. Uh, any other experiences beyond uh, that medical error, medical harm 
in all of your experience with the healthcare system? Well, I, I think it's the, the the most important thing to be said. The psychologization, psychiatrization of things that um, the medical system, as it is constituted here in Ontario, broadly speaking, in Canada today, that's a result of where the system is at, where our education is at. It's not the cause. The cause is <laughs> that there is a fundamental unwillingness to put in research dollars and to look to other jurisdictions and to believe patients. Those three things. If Canada put as much money into research on ME and MCS, for example, as there are people with those conditions diagnosed, and they're highly underdiagnosed, diagnosed in our country, we would have a very, very different situation. And I'm going to return to that and give you a very a concrete example of how research helps, okay? If doctors believed patients, and if they would even believe the evidence of their own eyes, in other words, a patient who lives a normal life, which is full of pain and joy and good and bad and whatever, but is kind of balanced and coming along, and then comes in one day and says, I don't know what's happened to me, I literally cannot get out of my bed, or Suddenly, uh, I can't stand the smell of the um, the printer cartridge in my office, and I and I my lungs close up. Why you would think that person would go from being a mentally healthy person to a mentally ill person uh, on on the strength of the fact that you don't understand what that is? That that is a that is a mindset inside me Canadian medicine today that is extremely, extremely harmful. Um, and where, and where does that germinate? Where did that originate? Hmm. If that, so that has a set of dynamics that work together as systemic discrimination, systemic, um, bias, but systemic bias, as you know, if we think about it with respect to racism or gender, is a, usually a combination of different dynamics that come together to produce this result, even if there isn't a person who has malice aforethought. So systemic resistance is a function of many factors, right? So, so in this case, there, there are a number of factors, and they work kind of seamlessly and synergistically together. So First of all, we should certainly begin with the fact that in North America, as on no other continent, medical doctors, MDs, as opposed to naturopaths or traditional doctors, developed a position of authority, it, not just by doing good things like developing diabetes, developing insulin for diabetes or good surgical techniques, but literally by putting all of the other healing professions down as quackery and inefficiency. And after a hundred years of this, they believe their own shit. You know, if we look at what has happened in Europe, naturopathic and uh, traditional herbal medicines never were discredited the way that they, that they were here. 
in um, the Indian subcontinent, Ayurvedic medicine has a highly prized and respected place. And well, it should, because it's an incredible body of, of healing knowledge. And, and we can say the same of traditional Chinese medicine, which is also being taken up in Japan and Taiwan and other parts of that, of that part of, of East Asia. And so the contempt with which doctors um, treated other modalities of healing is very pronounced in North America. But so that's that, that's that's factor one. So they believe their own shit. Okay. But there's another there's another factor, which is in Canada, the way we organized our payment, we decided that we were going to pay doctors and hospitals only, because at the time that Medicare was established, or the principles of it first in Saskatchewan, then in the rest of Canada, you know, people were facing catastrophic losses for catastrophic illnesses. You know, if, if you could not pay for a doctor when somebody had pneumonia or lost their leg in an agricultural accident or whatever. So we were looking at those kinds of il illnesses. We were not looking at the vast, vast, vast spread of chronic illness that we have today. And that's not only the aging population, that's from the time babies are born until, until they die. And we didn't look at what medicine would be best to help people through that. What we did do is that we let doctors have the monopoly on the healthcare dollar. And so that, you know, uh, as, as, as a guild um, to protect their monopoly of that do dollar, just as we don't pay for natural supplementation, even though it's much healthier as a rule and sometimes much more effective than pharmaceuticals, we pay for pharmaceuticals because the pharmaceutical industry got that monopoly of the public healthcare dollar. And that has been something that doctors have fought very hard to protect. And so layer that on top of, we believe our own shit. We are the ones who are entitled to money. Nobody else gets any. And then we created a system where the doctor was supreme and had no competition and got paid whether he or she did a good job or not. And what you see in the United States um, is that doctors have to compete with one another. And that means that there are spaces open up for people who are helping people that most doctors aren't helping to actually develop viable practices. And that is what's happened. So you can get treatment for MCS and I know you can get treatment for ME and certainly chronic fatigue. I've met many of the doctors who provide it in the United States. Now, there are many people who are uninsured in the US and I'm probably more left-wing than you are. I want public medicine, but, but it is not all right for doctors to be able to simply hang on to what they have and not have to serve patient need. So th there's a feedback loop in the US called the market. <laughs> if, if there's a big demand, and if there are doctors who are interested in uh, knowing more about the environment, knowing more about why people are developing these chronic fatigue uh, or, or horrendous myalgic encephalomyelitis symptoms, and there are patients who need them, there can be a fit there that is not interrupted, severed, ruptured by a healthcare system that will not pay those doctors to care for those patients. 
in part because those doctors don't want as a profession, not as individuals, but as a profession to learn more, do more, be different. And then the medical schools here, there's a, you know, that, that, that professional milieu is medical school, doctor, hospital, all of those institutions, and they reinforce one another. So you have this kind of perfect storm and it is incredibly hard to break through for almost anybody, but if then you layer on some of the things I think we talked about it before, which is that there's a deep sexist bias in medicine still to this day, even though many women doctors are there, it's there. So women who are, say they've got problems and if those problems, pain, uh, cognitive impairment, um, lack of sleep, all, all of, you know, reaction to chemicals, if those things are not part of the canon that is taught in the medical schools. And if doctors have been sanctioned by their um, colleges for actually treating those people, and you come to that and you're a woman, you are, forgive the French, shit out of luck because you're not going to get treated well at all unless you have a very, very, very rare, curious and courageous doctor. And there are very few of them but not enough to really break the, the situation. So if you add to that, that you're a patient, and then if you add to that, and if I may say so, because I don't want to rank how much we all suffer with neglect, but if you have a, an issue with chemicals, and you know that doctor I went to, to, to for, for dental work on Monday, I couldn't go to my own dentist who has a fragrance-free practice, I had to go to another. There's Febreze spray all over the place. Everybody is loaded with colognes. I mean, it was just plus all of the, you know, the chemicals from the dental work. Um, you go in there and you say, hey, I'm chemically sensitive. And this is a really difficult environment for me, for me to sit here for an hour, an hour and a half and, and do that. You know, they, they, they're not interested. And at, at the very least, I'm not interested. And at the very most, I think that really that's us emotional problem and you need to see mental health professional did not get that reaction because this dentist had been educated by another one who knew about it but the point is that the people don't want to change the way they wash their clothes what grooming products they put on the fact that they want to spray these chemicals in their bathroom um that the that the scented cleaning cleaner is cheaper than the unscented one and they don't know enough or they don't care that this is harming the chemicals are harming the earth harming their children harming animals making species go extinct they don't it's not something that they are concerning themselves with so add that on to all those other pieces and then you have that systemic resistance right so it is not one single thing it's a multi-factorial thing that's layered upon each other and so is there a place in his yeah I, I want to stop you when you say multifactorial, yeah yes yes but let's not forget the factors because we can name them and we can change them so sometimes if you i know because i have to explain mcs all the time if i use the word multifactorial, people's eyes glaze over you know, they go, oh, too many things. I can't keep track. Who knows about this and that? No, no, no. It's very simple. Doctors have a monopoly of the healthcare dollar. Doctors have, are, are, they're also integrated into the corporate structure. 
again, we discussed it another time, whether it's brown lung disease or mesothelioma or whatever, there's a kind of a tendency not to believe people when they raise certain things. They um, are they don't listen to patients. I don't know if it, that this is the exact number, but when I was working in health policy quite regularly, the uh, the the common wisdom was from studies that had been done that doc, the average doctor will listen to a patient how many minutes before she or he interrupts the recitation and states something or interrupts and sends it in the other direction. Would you like to take a guess how, how much time a patient is given on average? I'm gonna guess 22 seconds. That's good, 18. 18. <laughs> 18, 18. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a lot of time, no. but for a doctor not to talk for that much and give their opinion, that, that's a long time. Yeah, but how much can you explain in 18 seconds? I'm a fast talker. I can't explain a damn thing. All I can do is go, gee, I'm not sure. I've got a whole bunch of things going on at once. Which one should it be? Well, just tell me what, you know, and then it, that's it. It's, it's done. So, um, ah, and one very, very important thing, which fits into that sort of list that I told you is that Doctors, along with government, have so kind of um, compartmentalized and industrialized how they practice that there is, if you don't fit into the size of the slots, be it an eight minute appointment or maybe 20 minutes if you're really sick and it's really complicated, 20 whole minutes, and if you can't give them something that is in the diagnostic or service codes of the Ontario Hospital Insurance Plan, Health Insurance Plan, OHIP. If you can't, if you can't fit into their paradigmatic categories, then you don't fit. And the and the lack of the feedback loop that ha exists in the states called the market, where people can leave doctors that we're doing them no good and seek some out that are that there's no feedback loop for them to change that paradigm because they're not suffering for it financially and in fact their college the oma is their bargaining unit their their guild association they call it a union i call it a guild association because they're hardly workers um they're they're the ones who negotiate the the economic the recompense and the slots, but the college polices the diagnostic categories and the and and the way that medicine is practiced. And both of these organizations sanction doctors who take more time to be with their patients, open up the possibility that there's something more complex going on, take the experience of other jurisdictions where people with certain kinds of symptom clusters are being helped and try to do that. Whoa, can't do that can't do this off-label use of that drug, can't provide IV nutrients because that's something maybe naturopaths do and they're just quacks, can't do this, can't do that. You're not practicing medicine properly, goodbye. That's how it is here. And it might sound caricatural because people don't want to hear this about their system, but it, it's not, it's true, that's how it works. Yeah, that's very frightening for people that don't really understand the machinations of how our healthcare system works and obviously those people wouldn't have had much of an interaction with it other than anything that fits into their box already yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to some of the evidence i know you shared with me some of the the research uh 
so how much evidence is there for electrical sensitivity and for multiple chemical sensitivity? And how strong do you feel that evidence is? When people first started reporting the symptoms of multiple chemical sensitivity, that is that they were finding themselves ill in a whole number of ways um, as a result of things in their environment that other people seem to be able to take in their stride. So ranging from, you know, gasoline to pesticides to grooming products to, you know, all, all, the whole gamut of everyday chemicals. Um, there are many things we did not know how to do very well. And so there was only, let's say, into the late 80s, mid 90s, there was only a limited amount that could be shown about what mechanisms were at work with this condition. And some of those mechanisms were dismissed as unreliable. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on the history because I want to talk about the present. Sure. Um, but, but, but even as, for example, uh, we were developing the brain imaging technology called SPECT, uh, single positron electrotomography, if I've got that not quite right, but close. Um, for other conditions, when we were using it to look at the brains of people with MCS, which was happening many, many, there's a, in the, in the Dallas clinic, this, they use this all the time to look at um, what they think of as characteristic problems with the brain, areas that are damaged, gives them a sense sometimes of what kinds of therapeutic interventions could be made. Even as we were doing this with other diseases and conditions of the brain, which is relatively new, that material was being published on people with MCS and it was being dismissed. So in fact, all the way along as new forms of diagnosis, new technologies or procedures of diagnosis have come along, doctors who don't want to know about that have either ignored or dismissed those. Even if it's applicable in one place, it isn't applicable in another. So th th this, is, this is another feature, I suppose, of systemic intolerance, which would be called willful denial. And there's been a lot of that. But by 1999, um, two statements were issued. One, doctors working in and around patients with MCS. It was called the 1999 Consensus Statement on MCS. And another one called the uh, Statement on Idiopathic um, Environmental Illness by the American Association of Allergists and Immunologists. The consensus criteria were to me, when I looked at them, I said, yeah, and because they were so very, very, very vague. To me, even when they were issued, I thought they were highly inadequate. They talked about, um, they, they said the symptoms are reproducible, the condition is chronic, low levels of exposure result in manifestations of the syndrome, it improves when you take away the incitants, and um, can ha happen in response to chemically unrelated substances and involve multiple organ systems. So that was a great step forward over something that said, patients ex report all these uncomfortable symptoms. They say they're connected to chemicals, but really they're not, and they're just lying. Which is my paraphrase of the uh, Association of Allergists and Immunologists. Um, by then we had the SPECT scans, 
by then we were really understanding uh, through epidemiological studies that there were some pretty strong connections between pesticides and MCS. We were, there, there was a whole kind of impressionistic and clinical record of, we, we had the Gulf War experience where, you know, 200,000 people came back with MCS after huge chemical exposures. So there was a tremendous body of empirical information that was saying these symptoms exist, they are manifold and polysystemic, and we've got to do something about them coming from people who are suffering, from doctors who are trying to help them, and on the other hand, doctors whose own discipline, allergy and immunology, had not, as it was then constituted, helped them. So actually trying to suppress and deny that. However, since 1999, there have been a whole series of breakthroughs in diagnostic procedures, and we have got more and more and more evidence now. To the point that in 2015, a group of French and Belgian researchers from deep in the heart of mainstream medicine, which is to say cancer studies, began to be very alarmed at the relationship between environmental um, factors and cancer. Step A, step B, began to see a tremendous amount, began to realize they were seeing more and more people with environmental uh, electrohypersensitivity and multiple chemical sensitivity. And they be thought to themselves, okay, so we're in big hospitals. So we have access to, you know, large populations of patients. We have access to many different kinds of diagnostic technologies. Let's study these people. And they put together a cohort of nearly a thousand people. And between 2009 and 2015, when they published, that is to say six years, they studied nearly a thousand people for six years using a whole host of diagnostic technologies, which they felt were appropriate to the symptoms that they were being told they were experiencing. And guess what? They found all kinds of biomarkers. Now, stepping sideways for a moment to address the issue of biomarker. The way that ME and MCS have been dismissed, the sort of crowning glory of medical dismissal is that these aren't real diseases because if they were, they would have biological markers that would be typical of these things. And since we don't have them, they're not real and you must be crazy, okay? That is, and again, <laughs> I suppose when I say it, it sounds caricatural, but that's actually true, and I'm sure you could attest to that. So what happened is that these docs, Dominique Belpomme and his associates, uh, Christine Champagnac and Philippe Irguiré, actually started to look for biomarkers, and guess what? They found them. And they published this wonderful paper. It has a very long title, but, but it's a good one. Reliable disease biomarkers characterizing and identifying electrohypersensitivity and multiple chemical sensitivity as two etiopathogenic aspects, two things with pathogenic causes, etiopathogenic aspects of a unique pathological dis disorder. Unique and new, they have further added new. So they see electrohypersensitivity and chemical sensitivity as essentially the same disorder. And I'm here to tell you 
that anybody who suffers from severe chemical sensitivity pretty well has significant electrohypersensitivity and not necessarily vice versa, but they are very much the same. And the symptoms that people feel are the same. And these people began to realize we're talking about two sides of the same coin. So that's number one, because a lot of authorities have spent a lot of time trying to debunk both of them, because as threatening as MCS is to the chemical industry, you can imagine what EHS say to the cell phone industry, to the computer industry, and so forth and so on. So there's been gazillions of dollars spent. But what they found, and again, if you forgive me for looking at my screen, they found one, two, three, four, five, six things that they consider to be biomarkers that can be tested with standard medical tests. So nothing exotic um, that are characteristic of MCS. And what they're, and EHS. And what they're saying is you have to look in each person. Uh, not every person has 100% of these, except for one. One is in 100% of cases. I'll come to that in a moment. But if you find a symptom cluster with some or a number of these in that, you can pretty well be sure that you've, you've, you've nailed it in the biomarker department. This blows all the old bullshit out of the water. The, the thing that people have in common 100% is 24-hour urine 6-hydroxymelatonin sulfate slash creatinine. And what that is, is a melatonin deficiency. That's a pineal gland that is not working properly. And it is um, it was found in every single case and it causes chronic insomnia and fatigue in people with MCS who we have chronic insomnia and fatigue. I thought you might be interested in that one. 100%, 100%. So right there, you've got your universal biomarker. Then in addition, inflammation and histamine. Histamine is associated with allergies and reactions. So histaminia, too, a lot of, too much histamine in the blood very, very, very common to very large numbers of patients. Oxidative stress le measured by nitrotyrosine, which, and there's a whole kind of thesis about um, perioxynitrite, it's the brain biochemistry of MCS, let's put it that way. They found a biomarker for that. They found biomarkers, it's been hypothesized for a long time that people with MCS have a breach in the blood-brain barrier, or several, that that, blood, that barrier is damaged. They found two biomarkers for that that are very common in people with MCS. They found um, circulating autoantibodies against O-myelin, which indicates that it might be an autoimmune response, whatever we want to characterize that, but that there's an autoimmune com component to it. And, um, also, the very, very important and very common, very common, uh, is the hypoperfusion of the brain. That is to say, not enough oxygen is getting into the brain. And beyond that, through their brain imaging, they were able to show what region of the brain. So the temporal lobes and particularly the capsulothalamic area 
which includes the thalamus and the limbic system. That's where the damage is done. And so the fact that people have affective reactions like depression, anxiety, etc., as well as physical reactions like hives and pain and weakness and everything else is explained because the limbic system is very affected by these things. Now, I just read you five or six of these biomarkers and there they are. And what is stunning to me is that here in Ontario, with a task force that has just gone through a process of uh, trying to develop definitions for these illnesses and trying to say something about them, as far as I can tell, none of this was taken into account. Um, I haven't been able to read the lit review because it's non-transparent. It's, it's, we, we don't have access to it yet. Um, but you pointed out to me that on the uh, website of CEP, there are these three pieces that attempt to be kind of case definitions. And when I read that, it sort of says, well, we'll go with the 99 consensus criteria. So all these breakthroughs that we have had, and now all the biomarkers that are established, they're there, but the willful denial of them seems to be part of this picture. And just to add that not only is it important and interesting to have identified these biomarkers, and it's interesting because they correspond to the kinds of symptoms of illness that we have. We have a very hard time with sleep and we are worse sleeping than we are when we are awake. I mentioned last time we spoke a bunch of things that happened. You need to have identified whether you're running any infections, have infections treated. You need to have identified whether you've got a really heavy body burden of stuff you need. There's a whole bunch of things that you need to have done at that point. And if you can have them done, you can also according to these docs, it's almost impossible to reverse at that stage. I'm not going to say that because I still think it might be possible to reverse, maybe even at any stage, if you have the right interventions. Because the one thing these docs did not do, or, or at least they don't speak about, is the role of infections. And I have seen in my own life, in my own life, my mother's life, and that of many of the people at the Dallas Clinic, that when you were running long-term infections, it really compromised recovery. So if you can really address infections, and sometimes that's very difficult to do with Lyme disease, it's very difficult to do. And if you can work also on doing from stroke rehabilitation, certain kinds of exercises, the brain, you might even in stage three, but it's just like stage three cancer. It's a lot harder to get back from that than it is from stage one. So stage two is really bad and you're disabled by the by stage two. You cannot go back into that office. You, there's no, yes. no way. You can't travel the subway, et cetera. By stage three, you're completely isolated and you're sick and you're exhausted all the time. Again, I was in stage three when I went to Dallas, but they helped me enormously because they they, 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 they upped my immune system, they downed my infections, they gave me the nutrients that I needed, they helped my neurotransmitters, they did all, they, all these different facets of it, they intervened at once. And I got, I didn't get all better, but I got so much better. It was miraculous. So um, the important thing about medical error is not just that it's made once, 
but that it's made over and over and over again at all these successive stages that there's no recognition and there's no intervention. So people get sicker and sicker and sicker until we have the case and people, if they were reading, you know, the Toronto media or even in other parts of Canada or the United States about people this last year and the year before living on the streets, unable even to go into homeless shelters because the chemical fragrances and the cleaning materials were so bad. You know, I've known people who've lived on balconies in Ottawa in the wintertime, many people living in tents, many, many Canadians with MCS stage two and three have had to leave their families entirely behind and go and live in a tent in Arizona because it's warm enough that you can actually get through the night. The medical error, which is once upon a time was simple ignorance and now is willful ignorance, that medical error is repeated at every stage of the game and continuously over and over and over again. And it's and as far as I'm concerned, it's criminal. It's, it's just criminal because we have what we need to make the diagnoses. In, in France, we have it. We have from them and from the people in Dallas and many other MCS doctors ways to make people's lives so much better and indeed to restore most people to productivity. That may not be true for ME yet, but it is for MCS. But you have to acknowledge it in order to identify it and fix it. So that's what I say. So with the chemical industry being so powerful and the electrical industry being so powerful, it, it seems to me that those that are negatively impacted by chemicals or electric uh, activity uh, would be considered by those big corporate interests as collateral damage. Yes. Yes, um, in, in the book I'm writing now, if I ever get to finish it, if my brother can finally get better, I'll do it. It's a, I, wrote, I wrote a novel about privatization of water, you know, 15 years ago, because I was so, it's called Water Inc., if anybody wants to read it, got great reviews, it's a thriller. It's an environmental political thriller. Um, and and I, I'm writing one, on, uh, you know, about chemicals, which is a much more complex issue, but, um, you know, I have I have a chemical baron, if you like, you know, uh, you know, uh, arguing that to to various people that, um, yeah, you know, we're like, just get over your moral scruples. We are in the chemical age. We ain't rolling back the clock. And if people can't survive it, this is a kind of social Darwinist argument you know, then let them die off because we're going to need strong, healthy people going into the future. So they're dying of cancer, they're dying of MCS, they're dying of this and that, let them die because we need strong stock that can survive the chemical age. Now, it's like a the, form of eugenics. Yes, it is a form of eugenics. But it's, alas, you know, sometimes I get so tired, I shouldn't probably say this, but sometimes I get so tired, I sort of think, okay, let's do that because who wants to live like this? But the fact is that won't work. Eugenics didn't work either. But I mean, it, it, it doesn't work for these reasons, which is that while there are kids now who are being born with tremendous, tremendous disabilities, handicaps, and so forth, for a lot of people, the weaknesses that we have due to the chemical age due to the body burdens we're carrying, due to uh, you know, genetic heritage interacting with the other, they don't show until 
later in life. So lots of people get to reproduce and then they get sick, right? So there, there's no way to do that. That, 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 is, that is a form of true madness of the kind that we are seeing today in the Trump White House, a kind of blind psychotic denial of what we have done to the environment and what it is doing to us in return. And there is a, a, an element of psychosis to this. And, and, you know, the ironies here are just legion because, uh, you know, those of us who have these conditions are labeled as psychiatric cases, but the real psychosis is in the refusal to actually see what's out there in the world and what we're going to have to get rid of in order to survive as a species. So, you know, I guess you could call it irony. Irony is a gentle word for what it is. Um, but but, but there, there is no way to do that. You cannot adjust the human species, which co-evolved for, depending how far back you want to go into our primate past, millions of years in a natural world with certain types of chemical inputs, ultraviolet rays, um, oxygen, hydrogen, etc. But with those chemical inputs, but not all those other chemical inputs, you cannot, you cannot cull our herd, you know, that way it won't work because the organism has not evolved to live in this environment and Brave New World, that amazing novel written by Aldous Huxley in, what did he write, 1932, something like that. My God, he was prescient. You know, he has um, fetuses that are being raised to become, quote unquote, epsilon semi-morons. And uh, yeah, the workers of this, of this society, because the alphas are at the top, and then there's alphas, betas, et cetera, down to the people at the bottom who are called epsilon semi-morons. And they are raised in these artificial wombs in this book, and they are bombarded with chemicals as fetuses in order to make them resilient so that they can work in an industrial context. So that was both brilliant and so stupid because brilliant, the vision was brilliant because we are being bombarded in the womb. However, we are, and yes, it turns us into semi-morons. Yes, because the neurological deficits of that kind of bombardment are dreadful. Although some people on the autism spectrum are really brilliant as well, but they have a very hard time living in this world. The stupidity of it is, is that to imagine that the human physical being is infinitely malleable and can be changed and engineered to whatever you want. That's just not true. We are, we are, we are animals and we can only survive healthily in a healthy environment with which we co-evolved. So you can say collateral damage and that's fine for, um, you know, people who are wealthy and who are not in the stream of these chemicals who are way, 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 way upstream. Although nobody is upstream from cancer because these things are everywhere, okay? But still, you can, you can say that. And in fact, this whole way that we, our governments do risk assessment for chemicals is based in effect on that calculation, which is, okay, so how many people are going to die in Sarnia? 20%? Well, that, okay, so that's fine. We, we can handle that. We being the people who are sitting in Ottawa making these risk assessments who will not be exposed to those, nor were their mothers or their kids or their sisters or their brothers. And that is not, 
an ethical way to to evaluate chemicals. Um, but anyway, yeah, collateral damage. That's right. That's right. They don't give a shit. It's like that. But yeah, yeah. it also occurs to me that it's, <clears throat> it seems to be hard for the human species to think about the future. And to think about something that's uh, a distance away, they can't see it or think of it in the immediate future. It's hard to plan for that, to make allowances for that, to care about that. Your last sentence is the one that I would say is true. It's hard to plan for it. It's hard to go out and have a politics that accounts for it. Because surely, uh, maybe you don't read uh, science fiction. I don't read it anymore. I used to read it. I, I mean, now it's or, or or see what's coming out of Hollywood, the dystopian streak in our culture, which projects just 50 shades of apocalypse. OK, 50 different shades, 100, 2000 different shades of apocalypse and disaster. People can see into the future. What they can't do, what our species is extremely challenged, it can't it hasn't learned how to organize itself, its elites and its institutions in order to actually respond to what is there. I'm trying to remember what E.O. Wilson said. Do you know who E.O. Wilson is? The White he, Hotel? No, no. He, he, he's a soci he, he was a biologist. He was, oh. a, he, he, was he's, he was a great studier of ants. He was the one who was, you know, trashed for being a sociobiologist in the 70s when everybody thought everything was socially constructed, which it ain't. <laughs> There's a biological substrate there. Um, but he said the human species is dysfunctional because it has um, primal emotions, medieval institutions, and capitalist technology which is capable of destroying the world so technologically we're incredibly brilliant we can not only see what's coming we can make devices and machines that literally can transform everything around us and our relationship to everything around us we can, we can do that but we can't change we have not yet succeeded in changing, let me put it that way, a more hopeful formulation. We have not yet succeeded in changing our ability to govern ourselves, govern writ large, govern our healing professions, govern our, um, you know, our, our, our capitals, our military, our white, redistribute wealth so that we, because we know that actually a healthy people are physically healthy in societies with the least strata, social stratification. We haven't found a way. In fact, we're getting more and more and more stratified every day. So where we fail as a species is in that ability to govern ourselves. We don't fail technologically and maybe uh, we don't fail technologically. We can, we can do that. We don't fail in terms of our culture and our vision. We can see the result of where we're heading. It is much easier for the vast majority of people to envision an apocalyptic future than it is to envision a fair, honest government that actually organizes society in the interests of uh, the many. Most people can't figure that out at all. And even if it's presented to them, for example, by some players in the political arena, in my view, 
the Greens present some some of that. Um, this new caucus that's forming in um, in the United States, they're calling themselves the the Green New Deal. Re take the principles of redistribution, renew the American economy, make the infrastructure green, provide jobs to all, decent wages. It happened in the 30s. It can happen again. People can't even imagine that. So that's that's where that's where we're going down the tubes. Uh, that that's it because as you and I have just been talking, mostly me, we already have the wherewithal to help people with these conditions. Uh, and and if you gave a dollar a person, you know, or two dollars per person, you'd have millions of dollars to do research. Within a year or two, you'd know even more. But we can't seem to control our institutions and our elites to get that to happen. Well put. Well put. Thank you, Varda. You're welcome, Scott. Pleasure chatting with you and so edifying for myself. I'm going to have to process all of this information and listen to our conversation a couple of times to really appreciate uh, the depth of your knowledge. Well, Varda certainly tells it like it is. Eloquently, directly, passionately. I feel now that I've chatted with Varda, I have a much greater clarity on the various institutional machinations and corporate motivations that shape our healthcare system and sustain medical error at such a high rate and the discrimination against certain diseases like multiple chemical sensitivity. Thank you, Varda, for sharing your wisdom and experience. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a monthly patron by going to patreon.com slash medical error interviews and signing up to be a premium patron of the podcast. You can also support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. If you are experiencing your own fallout from medical error or living with a chronic illness, LGBT issues, or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself and others.